Chapter Ten of Religion and Science by John Charlton Hardwick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reactions in Philosophy. Vicissitudes of Idealism. At the beginning of the last chapter, we noticed the early collapse of idealism in Germany. But the prophets of Romanticism, when they were no longer honored at home, found a hospitable reception elsewhere, and especially in England. Indeed, even before the prestige of idealism had begun to decline in Germany, Englishmen had been introduced to it by the writings and translations of S. T. Coleridge, seventeen seventy two to eighteen thirty four, and Thomas Carlyle, seventeen ninety five to eighteen eighty one. These two popularizers of German ideas were literateurs rather than professional philosophers, but for that very reason their vogue and influence were the wider. Coleridge Coleridge was, in spirit, a genuine romanticist, being, as were some of the most notable of the German school, e.g. Goethe and Schiller, a poet as well as a philosopher. In his Biographia Literaria he has left behind the story of his intellectual and spiritual development. He acknowledges his debt to Kant, to the Romanticists, and in particular to Schelling, whose intuitionism was naturally congenial to him. Coleridge was never able to embody his philosophical creed in any single work. He does not seem to have possessed the necessary power of application. He was unfortunate in being a man of weak character, and his ineffectiveness struck his contemporaries. But in spite of these disadvantages, his sentimentality, the lack of clearness of his thought, his weakness for opium, he certainly exercised an important influence, especially in the realm of theology. His ideas, though vague, were calculated to awaken the speculative habit, and introduced as they were to a wide circle, were fruitful and stimulating. English theology had been, in the eighteenth century, of an arid kind, and the English philosophical tradition lacked, for the most part, appreciation of those deeper aspects of reality which had appealed to German thinkers. Coleridge, by introducing German speculation to his countrymen, was able to free theology of some of its narrowness, and to deepen and enlarge the spiritual outlook of his age. Thomas Carlyle Carlyle was a man of a very different temper, whose attitude towards Coleridge was half-contemptuous, half-compassionate. A typically Carlylean characterization of him may be found in The Life of Sterling. Quote, he was thought to hold, he alone in England, the key of German and other transcendentalisms. A sublime man, who alone in those dark days escaped from black materialisms and revolutionary deluges with God, freedom, immortality, still his. The practical intellects of the world did not much heed him, or carelessly reckoned him a metaphysical dreamer. But to the rising spirits of the young generation he sat there as a kind of magus, girt in mystery and enigma. End quote. Quote, the good man gave you the idea of a life that had been full of sufferings. The deep eyes of a light hazel were as full of sorrow as inspiration. Confused pain looked mildly from them, as in a kind of mild astonishment. The whole figure and air, good and amiable otherwise, might be called flabby and irresolute, expressive of weakness under possibility of strength. He spoke as if preaching, preaching earnestly and hopelessly the weightiest things. End quote. Carlyle himself had all the character and industry that Coleridge lacked, and it was another side of German idealism that had appealed to him. 
The Scotchman was of the same fibre and stock as that other half-Scotchman, Kant. Here was the source from which he had drawn his inspiration. We see in Carlyle the same moral earnestness, the same toughness of thought, the same absence of sentimental moonshine. From Kant, too, he derives a vigorous independence of thought, a religious respect for individuality, a horror of shams and affectation. Kant was a true child of the Reformation, and Carlyle is a genuine disciple. In a single important respect, however, he differed from, and improved upon, his master. Kant lacked, or at least did not display, the saving grace of humor. In Carlyle this quality looks out from every page, keen, satirical, sometimes bitter, sometimes grotesque. He ridiculed his own generation, its vices, its prejudices, its superstitions. Sartor Resartus For our purpose, Sartor Resartus, that profound and humorous book, is Carlyle's masterpiece. Here all the characteristic Kantian doctrines may be found. The Philosophy of Clothes, which is the quaint title behind which Kantian idealism is made to masquerade, starts from the thought that, just as an acquaintance with his clothes will not reveal to us the man, so an acquaintance with phenomena, which is all that science can claim to give us, cannot reveal to us the real ground of existence, which remains an inscrutable mystery. We must look on clothes till they become transparent, if we could understand reality. Quote, to the eyes of vulgar logic, what is man? An omnivorous biped that wears breeches. To the eye of pure reason, what is he? A soul, a spirit, and divine apparition. End quote. And so with nature. To science it is a mechanism, to the understanding heart it is the living garment of God. Quote, it is written, the heavens and the earth shall fade away like a vesture, which indeed they are, the time vesture of the eternal. The whole external universe and what it holds is but clothing. End quote. The visible world is but a symbol of profound and awful reality, and all nature's products in their degree, symbols as well, but of these, man is the highest. Quote, the true Shekinah is man. Where else is the God's present manifested? Not to our eyes only, but to our hearts, as in our fellow man. End quote. This leads up to the essential doctrine of the Kantian system, that man is a creature of two worlds, who has a foot in either. Hence, in the phenomenal world, he can never find satisfaction. Quote, Man's unhappiness, as I construe, comes of his greatness. It is because there is an infinite in him, which, with all his cunning, he cannot quite bury under the finite. Will the whole finance ministers and upholsterers and confectioners of modern Europe undertake, in joint stock company, to make one shoe-black happy? They cannot accomplish it, above an hour or two, for the shoe-black also has a soul quite other than his stomach. End quote. Quote, there is in man a higher than love of happiness. He can do without happiness, and instead thereof find blessedness. Has it not been to preach forth this same higher that sages and martyrs have spoken and suffered, bearing testimony to the godlike that is in man? End quote. Carlyle's Influence In spite of Carlyle's strange literary mannerisms and his grotesquely Germanic phrases, his writings had great attractiveness for those of his contemporaries who felt themselves smothered by the materialism and utilitarianism of early Victorian England. 
he was able to revitalize idealism amongst them. Moreover, he appealed strongly to those to whom the Coleridgean speculations were uncongenial. The strongly developed moral element, both in his writings and in his own somewhat stern and austere personality, what Taine called his Puritanism, appealed strongly to a certain side of English feeling. His countrymen felt that his was a native genius that they could understand. In fact, we may say that the influence of Carlyle, especially among the young and generous-minded, has been incalculable in extent and invaluable in quality. Spiritual life in England stands under a deep obligation to him. Romanticism at Oxford Englishmen were thus not entire strangers to German idealism, which had possessed its interpreters in the earlier half of the nineteenth century. Not, however, until it had experienced a decline in Germany, a reaction which occupied our attention in the last chapter, did Romanticism become naturalized in England by being adopted in academic circles. Among the most notable of English idealists was T. H. Green, fellow and tutor of Balliol College, Oxford. In this thinker we have a widely different type of mind from that of either Coleridge or Carlyle. He was a thinker rather than a poet or a prophet, and he belonged to what we have noticed as the intellectualist, i.e. Hegelian, wing of Romanticism. Green's chief work was his Prolegomena to Ethics, published posthumously in 1883, where arguments which were familiar to those acquainted with Hegel presented themselves. Green begins with an analysis of experience, and leads to the conclusion that nature, if by it we mean the connected order of experience, implies something other than itself, as the condition of its being what it is. And of that something we are entitled to say, positively, that it is a self-distinguishing consciousness. Section 52. If these conclusions be valid, the bottom falls out of naturalism, for if nature implies something other than itself, it does not stand alone. And that nature does stand alone is the beginning and end of all naturalist theory. And furthermore, this something other than itself, which nature involves, is a self-distinguishing consciousness, i.e., something to which we can attribute personality. Green and Spencer Contrasted This theory has only to be compared with that of Herbert Spencer for a fundamental difference to declare itself. The two systems do indeed adopt as axiomatic the conception of the uniformity and unity of nature, which works in accordance with a single law. But Spencer saw in that law the expression of a blind force, an unknowable power, of which it would be no more and no less true to say that it was spiritual than that it was material. But for Green the law was the expression of a spiritual principle, analogous to our own intelligence, a manifestation to use theological language, of God. F. H. Bradley Undoubtedly the most notable of English Hegelians is F. H. Bradley, whose metaphysical essay, Appearance and Reality, was a work of genuine originality. The book is not of a type to make much appeal outside academic circles, though it is written in an easy and attractive style. Its results may seem, to the unsophisticated reader, somewhat too ambiguous. Ultimate Doubts is the title of the last chapter, and It Costs Us Little to Find That in the End Reality is Inscrutable, is a remark not uncharacteristic of the author. 
Yet this really profound thinker and acute reasoner played an important part in helping to discredit that negative dogmatism which was so much in vogue during his own lifetime. He pointed out the limits beyond which natural science could not transgress without lapsing into dogmatic superstition. Quote, too often the science of mere nature, forgetting its own limits and false to its true aims, attempts to speak about first principles. It becomes transcendent and offers us a dogmatic and uncritical metaphysics. End quote. Though the fault has not always been on the side of the scientists, Quote, metaphysics itself, by its interference with physical science, has induced that to act as it thinks in self-defense, and has led it, in so doing, to become metaphysical. And this interference of metaphysics I would admit and deplore as the result and apparent of most injurious misunderstanding. So long as natural science keeps merely to the sphere of phenomena and the laws of their occurrence, metaphysics has no right to a single word of criticism. End quote. This critical handling of the problem of the relations of science and philosophy did much to draw attention to the confusion of thought lying at the base of much popular materialism. It began to be realized that the principles of physical science are only fruitful of good results in the sphere properly belonging to them, and that the uncritical use of these principles results in a hybrid philosophy which is neither sound science nor rational metaphysics. A. J. Balfour before Bradley's essay was published, a somewhat similar line of criticism had been developed by Mr. A. J. Balfour in his Defense of Philosophic Doubt, 1879. Its title sounds unpromising, but the book voiced a demand for a rational philosophy of science which was practically non-existent at that time. And consequently, in the absence of any adequate examination of the principles of science, uncritical dogmatism flourished quite unchallenged. Balfour, elsewhere, indicates the objects with which he wrote the book, to elicit from the disciples of natural science a rationale of their method. Quote, a full and systematic attempt, first to enumerate, and then to justify, the presuppositions on which all science finally rests, has, it seems to me, still to be made. After the critical examination which I desiderate has been thoroughly carried out, it may appear that at the very root of our scientific system of belief lie problems of which no satisfactory solution has yet been devised. End quote. Thus Balfour drew attention to the fact that the common-sense philosophy of naturalism rested upon a tacit agreement to overlook certain important problems which are the indispensable preliminaries to any thinking which can be called critical, or lay claim to be regarded as philosophy in the strict sense. That some of these problems seem artificial, and the questions raised by them gratuitous to the eye of common sense, is an irrelevant consideration, for nothing stands more in need of demonstration than the obvious. Naturalism checked. Thus Bradley and Balfour between them, merely by adopting a critical attitude, created an embarrassing situation for naturalism. Between them, these writers administered a serious check to that naively uncritical dogmatism, which, backed by the prestige of natural science, had sought to impose itself on the world as a new orthodoxy less liberal, in some ways, than the old. Nor did they stop short at negative criticism, but substituted, according to the idealistic tradition, a spiritual view of reality for the mechanistic materialism that had become so popular. 
Appearance and Reality, is a book of which the trend might seem too obscure, but it ends with a note that is definite enough. Quote, Outside of spirit there is not, and there cannot be, any reality. And the more that anything is spiritual, so much the more is it veritably real. End quote. Are Bradley's closing words. As for Balfour, he leads his readers up to a point which he describes as the threshold of Christian theology. And having propounded their perplexities in which the common-sense philosophy, on which naturalism depends, is involved, he said, quote, I do not believe that any escape from them, their perplexities, is possible, unless we are prepared to bring to the study of the world the presupposition that it was the work of a rational being, who made it intelligible, and at the same time made us, in however feeble a fashion, able to understand it. End quote. Revival of Idealism in Germany Lotze. We have, perhaps, dwelt at too great length upon the backwash of the idealistic wave in England, for idealism is not a native philosophy amongst us, possibly because we are not metaphysically minded in the same sense as are the pure Teutonic breed. And it is time to pass on to pay a brief tribute to the work of a German philosopher who accepted the mechanical theory in its totality without sacrificing what we may call the spiritual values of existence. Hermann Lotze, 1817-1881, was inclined to feel that the weakness of Romanticism lay in a tendency to despise or overlook what Kant had called the fertile bathos of experience. The Romanticists had too often neglected natural science, which, in the shape of naturalistic materialism, had its revenge by destroying them. Büchner was the nemesis of an idealism, which was at once vague and sentimental. Lotz's Microcosmos Lotz's attitude and method are conspicuous in his well-known work, which took him eight years to complete, 1856 to 1864, The Microcosmos. After guiding his readers through the realms of natural phenomena and historical evolution, thus constructing a sufficiently stable basis out of facts, he leads them on to an ideal world composed of what he calls values. His position may thus be summarized. The world presents itself to the observer in three aspects. One, the world of individual things, which are bewildering and intricate. Two, the laws, i.e. laws of nature, which the human intellect has discovered among them, thus finding regularity and order. Three, the values which the human soul applies to things, and which it is the human task to cultivate. This world of ideals, or values, three, is that for the sake of which the worlds of phenomena and law, one and two, exist. These, one and two, constitute respectively the material in which, and the forms through which, the world of values is to be realized. Thus phenomena and law are the raw materials out of which values are created, and these values themselves constitute, in the eyes of Lotze, a higher reality. Thus the central doctrine of his system is that the truly real is what has supreme worth. It is worth that creates reality. The paradoxicality of this may make it difficult to accept, but Lotze is only expressing in his own way the fundamental thesis of all forms of idealism that the ideal is the real, that the world of phenomena is secondary to, and dependent upon, a world of spirit, or an ideal world. 
Lotze himself, in the introduction to the microcosmos, expresses what is at once the foundation and the kernel of his system. He says it is his purpose to show how absolutely universal is the extent, and at the same time how completely subordinate the significance, of the mission which mechanism has to fulfill in the structure of the world. Mechanism is universal because it is the raw material, so to speak, out of which reality is to be made. That reality can be expressed in terms of mechanism is true, just as a poem can be described as a scrap of paper scratched upon with a pen. But this reduction of reality to its lowest terms ends by emptying reality of content. Mechanism is a universal feature, but it is a subordinate feature of reality. Nature requires, if we are to arrive at the truth about it, not only to be described and analyzed, but also interpreted in the light of the idea of value or worth. Lotze and Theology Lotze's theories exercised an important influence upon the development, in Germany and elsewhere, of a type of theology known as Richleanism. Albrecht Ritschel, a disciple of Lotze, attempted to dissociate religion from metaphysics, and to base it upon judgments of value. Christian dogma, for instance, is an attempt to express, in philosophical terms, the unique value to humanity of the moral and religious consciousness of Christ. So far as a dogma is faithful to that central idea, and makes a genuine attempt to express it, so far, and so far only, is it true. This type of theology, uniting itself with certain philosophical tendencies which will engage our attention later, became the basis of what was known as the modernist movement in the Roman Catholic Church. Conclusions Thus in the nineteenth century in England, and indeed on the continent also, the idealistic attitude, though it sometimes might seem compromised, was never submerged, in spite of the materialistic outlook of an age only too preoccupied with scientific discovery and commercial expansion. End of chapter 10